This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. So, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson. And this is The Enemies List. My guest today on The Enemies List is Frank Four, the author of The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Folks, I, I want to say before we get started, I am a massive consumer of political biographies. They're, uh, of the couple thousand books filling my house, trust me, my fiance will mention that from time to time, probably about a third of them are political biography. And this is in the very top tier of of books about not only American presidents but about Joe Biden and I've I've talked to and interviewed and read the Chris Whipple book the Evan Osnos book and of course probably the best description until now of Biden his management style his his career his his philosophy was Richard Ben Kramer in What It Takes but I have to tell you folks I am blown away by this book I think it's absolutely tremendous uh, and I am so delighted to welcome Frank Four to the enemies list today. Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. And I am so excited to talk through what you've learned about Joe Biden and uh, about the lessons he's had, not only in his career, but how his time in the White House has changed Joe Biden from the Senate Joe Biden that we all knew as a fixture of American politics for uh, half a century to today. I mean, uh, thank you for your very, very kind words. And it's an honor to be here. To get started, you talked about how Joe Biden had always sort of believed in the better angels of people uh, and, and in their and their better instincts. As president, suddenly that was challenged like it had never been challenged before. Right. Talk a little bit about that and, and about sort of the, the shock of becoming a president in the post-Trump era and in having to manage both his friends and his enemies in a lot different ways than he ever had before. I think one of the things that uh, everybody shorts, forgets in their very, very short historical memories is um, are the conditions that Joe Biden inherited when he became president. It's so hard to imagine how hard the pandemic was rampaging across the country. It's hard to imagine that he took his oath of office standing on the very scene of the insurrection and that impeachment of the last president consumed the first months that he was in office, that he had this economy that was teetering and he had the institutions of government that he inherited were were a wreck because of the previous administration. And Joe Biden's inaugural address was about the virtues of unity. And it was possible to read that speech in a very in a way that that 
corresponded with the view of Joe Biden that uh, that Joe Biden was a naive fetishist about bipartisanship. And there is part of that that is true about Joe Biden. He is he loves bipartisanship in a way that um, is almost spiritual for him. But he he, get, he gives this address about how unity is the best solution. And he was proposing a popular front, really, against the enemies of of democracy. And so he goes through his first year. And at every turn, he's confronted with these decisions about how hard to push things in terms of his agenda, but also the style with which he pursued his agenda. So you have the vaccine rollout. And so the vaccine becomes this question of how do you get the unvaccinated, the vaccine hesitant to accept it? Do you engage in persuasion or do you mandate that they take the vaccine? Do you do vaccine passports or create other strictures that necessitate that? And for most of his first year, he resisted the pressure of the wonks and the advisors who said mandate the vaccine. Um, and the same was true with uh, some of the initial pieces of legislation that he pursued, where you had people on his staff and certainly within his party who said, screw compromise. You can just pursue everything through the reconciliation process. Go big. Um, and Biden's response was, you may be right that in the end, I have to pursue reconciliation on these things. But as a matter of just tactics and good democratic practice, I have to at least pursue the alternative of compromise. And so he did that with the American Rescue Plan. There was actually a deal to be had. If the moderate Republicans had come back with a bill, a compromise that was closer to a trillion dollars, I think that he would have he would have taken it. And maybe things would have turned out very differently as a result. <laughs> um, but it, by the time he gets to the end of his first year, Afghanistan has happened the vaccine, which carried all of this promise, hadn't managed to truly defeat the pandemic. Um, and so he's forced to go in a different sort of direction. His faith in the better angels, as you called it, was severely tested. And, and I think he makes some of the biggest mistakes of his presidency when he squanders his faith in better angels, that he he pursues a vaccine mandate, which was both... Uh, a legally maximalist strategy that was always going to have difficulty in courts, but also not likely to work just to piss people off who hadn't taken the vaccine. He pursues uh, the strategy of abolishing the filibuster in order to get voting rights through the Senate and ends up comparing um, some of the senators he needs to Bull Connor, and that ends up flopping. And so I think he goes through this cycle of having his faith tested and then in some ways, having to return to his initial faith uh, in order to get the greatest successes of his administration, which come splayed across his second year. So I think that's a really good point, Frank. And I was talking to people around the White House, you know, early in the first year. And I think there was this sense of like, we've got to burn it down and do whatever we can because, you know, the, 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 the horde is at the door. We'll never get anything done if we don't do it right now. But his, as you said, his successes have come from Joe Biden being that guy who's more of the Senate player, the avuncular kind of, hey, buddy, let's work something out than, than trying to you know slam it all through. What you're making me think is of this counterfactual question. So if Afghanistan hadn't happened, he would have been able to maybe apply the pressure to Manchin and Cinema to get the maximalist version of Build Back Better through the Senate, which would have been a $3.5 trillion spending package that would have done a lot to expand the social safety net in ways that would have pleased the Democratic base, 
and given him this legacy that would have arguably placed him in the pantheon of democratic presidents, but also posed all sorts of political problems from for him, I think, moving forward, because it was such a aggressive piece of legislation. It would just be interesting to consider if he did a bill that had a significant chunk of, of redistribution that did introduce these new benefits, how that would have changed his political prospects for better or for worse headed into 2024. That's a really fascinating counterfactual because look, I can tell you as a former Republican political strategist, I would have taken that big maximalist thing and turned it into scare granny uh, that communism is here. (laughs) It would have been fake, but it would have been, there would have been probably a lot more material in there that would have been like the, the, the shock and awe for the Republicans to, to, to try to scare the, the base back into line. In the course of a lot of this, I, you know, it's easier almost to deal with Mitch McConnell than it is to deal with Joe Manchin for, for him. There, there are things there where Manchin keeps popping up like a bad penny in this thing. Uh, Manchin and Cinema, but Manchin, to my mind, is there's, the through line of a lot of these fights is you can't count on in a very closely divided Senate on Joe Manchin most of the time. You got to you know do a lot of work on him, and on Kristen Cinema, a good amount of the time. What is his relationship like now? Do you think with with Manchin as as this as Manchin has sort of grudgingly come on board a little bit here and there? Was he shocked by how hard it was to get Manchin on board? I think so because uh, for most of 2021, he was sitting around telling anybody who walked into the Oval Office, "Don't worry about Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin always votes with with me when I need him to vote with me," and. The problem was, was that he was pushing Manchin constantly into places that Manchin didn't especially want to go. And Manchin may have this vestigial loyalty to the Democratic Party that keeps him tethered. And parentheses, it's kind of incredible that Joe Manchin still caucuses as a Democrat, that he hasn't followed Kirsten Sinema into caucusing as an independent, independent. And that probably tells you something predictive about what he ends up doing in this no labels campaign, I think, in the end. But the problem with Joe Manchin is that Joe Manchin is a hel- is a very nice guy. And he'll tell you one thing to your face, but it doesn't necessarily reflect all of the thinking that's going on in his head. And he's a very difficult guy to read because he'll say one thing to one audience and then say another thing to another audience. And um, that became the interpretive problem that the Biden administration had, that they would hear all of this noise coming from him and it was going in contradictory directions. And so he was very, very hard to interpret. And I think, you know, in the end, Manchin, I I have to give him real credit because he could have very easily let everything go. And he kept coming back to the negotiating table and he had a very clear sense by the time he got to the end of what he actually wanted. And just to go back to that counterfactual I proposed about like how could the Biden agenda have morphed in different directions, what he left Joe Biden with was probably some of the most the most politically capacious vision of Bidenomics, which is this investment in manufacturing that he's he's getting this uh, the path to clean energy to happen faster than anybody could have possibly anticipated, but it's done through carrots without uh, any real sticks. And so business doesn't especially hate what he's doing because it's a growth strategy. It's a pure growth manufacturing strategy. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I, I had a person, a, a guy that I know in, in the private equity world, who's actually functionally a Republican, who uh, is a Republican donor, really. I asked him, I, I jokingly said to him, like, I'm like, oh, is, is it the doom of American free enterprise now? Are you, are you, are you, are you terrified? I was kind of making fun of him. And he goes, no, no, I think Chips Act, is, he starts going through it like point by point, like it's going to incentivize this, it's going to help these kind of, and it was, and it, it did strike me that, that, that through all the, the the pain to get through all these things, it kind of came back that Joe Biden is this sort of classic center left, you know, guy who loves manufacturing, loves labor unions, loves, you know, a vision of America you know, as a productive comp- country. Uh, he kind of got that. I think you're right. I mean, maybe Manchin gave him a gift in the end, really, in, in a strange, un- unintended way. The thing about Joe Biden is he comes from the 1950s. He's a silent generation guy and nostalgia is so much part of who he is. Uh, it's, it's his actually a very interesting character trait of his for somebody who suffered so much in his past. He's always longing for the past. And there's like this, this Eden back there that he's always hoping to recapture. And so for him, DuPont in circa 1955 is like is like what america should be pointing towards that you have this big corporation that's actually rooted in a community and um you know is pursuing profit and innovation but also is treating its workers well and is in is and is creating jobs that give people dignity it is kind of like a very vanilla very centrist vision but it actually happens to represent something that is pathbreaking within the Democratic Party because he's turning his back on a lot of the economics that you saw in the Clinton and Obama administrations, which was about globalization, very lukewarm towards unions, um, very lukewarm towards regulation. And I actually think that uh, you could think of this a little bit like uh, a more minor version of the Reagan revolution where Jimmy Carter comes to office Jimmy Carter discredits regulation. Jimmy Carter says Washington is part of the problem. Then Reagan swoops in and, and does the kind of free market Republican conservative version of that. And Trump was a bit like the Republican Jimmy Carter. He comes in, he starts to break some old shibboleths about economics. And then Biden comes in and takes them in a bit of a more definitely grown up direction, but also uh, a bit more of a progressive direction in that climate is like the big thing that he's putting his stamp on with the manufacturing agenda. So let me ask you this. Let's, let's jump to, to Biden as a foreign policy president, because I think that's one of the most important uh, aspects of what he's done so far. He has rebuilt our relationship with NATO. He has strengthened our Pacific alliances and is in the face of a of an expansive you know China, he has been aggressively 
supportive of Ukraine and its war uh, that that Russia is waging against it. And, and I think people missed that. I think they missed that. I mean, and look, I can tell you from my very, very misspent youth, I mean, I was with Biden on a couple of congressional delegations when I worked at the Department of Defense back in the 19, early 1990s. And, and you know, this guy has always been interested in foreign policy. Talk to me a little bit about how not only he's approached foreign policy, but how Afghanistan particularly shaped the rest of his foreign policy pursuits since then. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I get asked about a lot, because this age question is swirling around constantly, is like, you know, is he is he really this guy, this puppet who's, you know, dancing on the strings of some uh, puppet master in the background? And I've gone I've been able to see him in small group setting. And one of the things that I think is most impressive about him to me when I've seen him is the way that he talks about the grand strategy of the Biden administration. And I heard him once talk about how he thought about the the Indo-Pacific and about containing China, although he never uses the word contain. And he just started going around the map and he was like, "Okay, we've got this new alliance with Australia that we've brokered. You know, we've brokered a, a, a detente between South Korea and Japan who've hated each other, you know, since time immemorial. And now they're aligned. I've taken Modi and I've pursued this personal diplomacy with Modi and I've been able to try to bring him into the U.S. column. And then I've gone to Vietnam and I've been able to pluck off all these countries on the, the periphery of China and to bring them into our alliance. I've gone to Europe and by restoring our alliances with Europe, I just haven't made our NATO strategy good as it relates to Russia. I've taken them and I've brought them to a position on China that they were reluctant to go to. And then we have these investments that we're doing in order to combat the Belt and Road Initiative abroad. And it's like he can see, you know, at his best, he can see the chess pieces and how they're all moving on the board. And he's thinking really strategically about that. You know, Afghanistan was the low point of his administration. And I think it's uh, so what I just described to you was the way in which his wisdom uh, based on his age and experience, allow him to do foreign policy at a very high level. And I think Afghanistan was maybe the downside of that because he had seen the Obama administration struggle to get out of Afghanistan. He'd been to the country so many times. He felt like this was never going to happen unless he bull rushed it through the interagency process and that he essentially didn't want to get jammed by the military in the same way that the military had jammed Obama. And so he really kind of jammed the military in reverse and managed Milley and the general so that they were they came around to a position that they were reluctant to support. And the problem with that, in my view, was that um, Biden was thinking strategically, but he was neglecting a lot of the human quotient of the Afghan problem. He underestimated that the that the pictures, that the images would be so painful and striking, and and your chapter about uh, John Bass stands at the gates of despair, that who was over there trying to organize the withdrawal effectively, um, it's it's heart wrenching, and it, it's 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 so painful to know what was coming. Afghanistan is one of those questions that we and and the Russians and everyone else who's ever gone to Afghanistan 
they'll spend we'll spend hundreds of years trying to unpack what went wrong. I mean, the British are still trying to unpack what went wrong. Everyone, it, it is the graveyard of empires, whatever you want to call it. But those scenes of people fleeing through a, a ditch full of sewage, trying to get their la- in the in the last moments at the Abbey Gate, it it's agonizing. Where do you think Biden stands with that? I mean, I think he, does he does he believe that that was was the best thing we could have done? I think that uh, he believes that it was the right thing to do. It was ripping off the Band-Aid that nobody predicted that it would happen as quickly as it would as it happened, which is in itself a kind of damning response on his part that because uh, it, it meant that it was going to happen not on America's watch and then we could wash our hands of the problem. But, you know, he is probably right in that regard. It probably always was going to be a terrible situation um, after we left, but he just didn't foresee it and didn't warn the American people about it. And he didn't plan um, to compensate for that terribleness in an adequate sort of way. It's like an amputation. If you have to do it, you know, things have already gone so wrong that, that, you know, you're stuck in that problem. But on a, on a, on a more successful note, I think, you know, and you, you write a little bit about his relationship with Zelensky, which I, if I'm if I'm doing my math right in the calculation of the writing process, it was still fairly early on in the war, probably when you were wrapping up that part of the book. I, I think Biden gets a tremendous amount of credit, deserves a tremendous amount of credit for not only doing it in a way, supporting Ukraine in a way that's been very measured and smart, but also not cutting Putin a lot of slack as somebody you can you can rationally deal with. Um, where, where do you think he stands right now? Biden stands right now in terms of of the Ukraine appraisal and and of the role the former Soviet Union and Putin and Russia are, are going to play. Well, one thing that I think we take for granted is Ukrainian fighting capacity and Russian weakness on the battlefield. But with the ways that the Russians have dug in over the course of this um, second year of the war is such that uh, they're probably only uh, it, one uh, military expert told me that there are probably only two armies in the world that could manage to break through the Russian entrenchments and the Russian lines as they've been aligned. And that it's the United States and actually the Israelis have a lot of the doctrinal sophistication and combined arm uh, training to be able to break through. And the Ukrainians are just up against a very, very formidable enemy. And we for, we forget that. But I think that you need to look at this as a political matter. And it is astonishing that when Biden came to office, the world was basically indifferent to autocracy. Americans were indifferent to autocracy. The Europeans had learned to live with Vladimir Putin. And that his great success is that he's helped preserve the political conditions in order to deliver the Ukrainians massive, massive amounts of arms and aid. And two years into the war, yeah, we have some House Republicans who will cause him some serious trouble on this eventually. But ultimately, he's been able to keep things together long enough that Ukraine can feel that Kiev is safe and that they have the the kind of the, the upper hand right now, at least in terms of controlling the contours of the battlefield. They may not be winning in the way that we would want them to be winning, but they're still the, um, right now they're the aggressor on the battlefield. The Russians are forced into a defensive posture. 
right? They haven't, you know, they, they, they're, they're winning by not losing at the moment. I, I think Putin's probably a little shocked by Biden because there is a Russian tendency to think that they kind of got the best of both worlds uh, when Trump got elected. They thought, okay, the Democrats are don't want to be involved in, in major foreign conflicts, and the Republicans are largely now gravitating towards us ideologically for a whole host of bizarro reasons, including a, a sort of Republican embrace of authoritarianism and statism that wasn't as evident before. Look, Joe Biden was never a complete dove, but Joe Biden was far, far from a Cold War hawk. I mean, I, 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 he, he was he was harder than people thought, and he was always he was always an, you know a patriot about stuff. But I think the Russians are are kind of surprised how easily Biden has kept it away from him versus Putin, and kept it in the frame of of Zelensky versus Putin. I think that hurts Putin's feelings in a weird way more than like P- Joe Biden spends a lot more time thinking about. Modi or Xi or our allies than he does about Putin's behavior, which I think is kind of fascinating. I want to move on to the the question that is obsessing the American media uh, at 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 scale. That is the centerpiece of the Republican attacks on Joe Biden, uh, and that is that is to my mind something we're going to have to deal with a lot in the next year and a half. Joe Biden's mental acuity, Joe Biden's health, his capacity to serve as president for another term. Um, in your reporting and writing on this, um, you portray a guy who, yes, he's getting older, but he is still in the room particularly, very sharp, very cogent, understands the big picture in ways that a lot of the critics of his age don't. Talk to me a little bit about that and and tell me where you think that that is playing not only in the big picture, but in Biden's mind himself about where he thinks about you know the, the next six years. Only thing I can do is take a picture of his mental acuity during the period that I reported on him. Right. And, you know, what I saw was a guy who had the energy and who had the skills to be able to govern, uh, you know, uh, very effectively. And that age was actually more of an asset in terms of his governing um, than it was a detractor. So that's that's the present. You have his declining physical energy, which is real. Right. He he is not the same guy he was 20 years ago. So saith we all, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, he moves slowly. He, he He's not going to be able to campaign in the same sort of way. And that's come at a cost for him. I think that he's done a not very good job at, at selling um, his successes. He struggled as a as a presidential communicator. And that's an important part of the job. And we can't discount the way in which age has hurt him on that score. And then there's this question about moving forward. Like, what will Joe Biden be like uh, five years from now? And I can't answer that question because I, everybody ages in a very different sort of way. And, And aging is not linear. It's not like every week you become duller or less energetic. They're they're people who maintain the same physical state for years on end. They're people who start to decline really precipitously. And I just don't know how anybody can assess that. And But the way that everybody does assess it is that they bring their own personal baggage to the issue because everybody's got a parent who's aged or a grandparent who's aged. And you end up projecting that onto Joe Biden. I mean, what it seems to me what Joe Biden thinks about his age is uh, he, he thinks, 
look, I've done a very good job governing this country. And it should be apparent to everybody that I've got the mental acuity to do this. But I think that the fact that the country doesn't really fully appreciate Joe Biden is like, this has always been the driving force for Joe Biden to keep moving forward. He really, he really wants to be appreciated. He really doesn't like being underestimated. And that's the thing that, that causes him to keep running for president all these many times. I think that, yeah, I, I think you hit on something really important and interesting there is that this is a guy with a, a determination to do this job that he's had since he was, since he was in his forties, since he was in his, you know, late third, this is the path he's pursued. No, no matter how many times he got his ears knocked back, you know, he kept pushing forward on it. I think, I think people underestimate grit uh, with this, the grit with this guy at, at a, at a level. I think they underestimate he's sort of stubbornly going to push through on what he wants to do as the right, and, and, and that he believes is the right thing to do. Right. And there's something admirable about that grit um, because it makes him at times a contrarian who just doesn't listen to all the pundits who tell him to do one thing. And then other times the grit causes him to do things that, you know, where he's just being pigheaded. Sure. As we all are. I did my best job writing about the first two years of his presidency. And I think I described them as a a fairly successful two years of American governance. But really, his legacy hinges on his ability to defeat Donald Trump in 2024. And so, you know, my book will feel very much like a footnote if he loses to, to Donald Trump in 2024. Well, listen, I think, Franklin, you have produced an absolutely amazing bio of a moment in time where a president, people who thought I think even a lot of his allies thought, oh, he's going to be a caretaker. This will he'll mark some time and and his administration will basically be like my old boss, George Herbert Walker Bush, and it'll be a transition between the old era and the new era. I, I think he's defied that, and I think he really captured that really brilliantly in this book. Well, folks, thank you uh, again for joining us on The Enemies List. And Frank, thank you so much for coming on today. Folks, the book is The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future available where all fine books are sold. Uh, get it, read it. It is tremendous. I think you will get a lot out of it as we approach the 2024 elections. And once again, Frank, thank you so much for coming on today. I so enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Likewise, my friend. Keep in touch. Let's talk soon. Okay. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the enemies list, Elon Musk. Listen, dude, I've said it before. The things you're doing with EVs and the things you're doing with space are tremendously important and powerful for the future of mankind. They really are. No hate, right? But listen, cutting off Starlink and pretending that you're going to block Starlink because you have the judgment to decide whether or not your friends in Russia are telling you the truth about whether you're going to start a world war. Come on. that's your, your, Those britches are a little big there, pal. Here's the thing. Starlink's an amazing technology. I'm, I'm hopeful that these stories are true, that you're going to basically um, let the Defense Department, which is paying you for it, take over on how they geofence it. But look, one thing you should know, Elon, is that Putin's going to lose. The chances are that Putin is a guy who's going to end up eventually end up being thrown out the window. And Russia's going to change again. They're not even that big of a market for you, okay? So try not to believe that you are some sort of foreign policy or defense expert when 
basically you're a guy who's got a lot of money and some cool tools. Go back to building rockets. Get let's get let's get Starship Two off the ground. But until then, please stop fiddling and trying to, to to follow along with your with your weirdo pro-Russian friends um, like Ian Miles Chong and and whoever the else whoever else is influencing you in that space, because they're on the losing side. They're on the losing side of history, and they're going to lose this war. Uh, you want to be on the right side of things. And until then, you're on the enemies list, pal. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, and blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.